This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Jonah Hall. Jonah is an experienced self-storage investor who focuses on converting existing properties into climate-controlled self-storage. But he doesn't just stop there. He and his partners have made these properties incredibly tech-enabled. So today we're digging into that whole model from beginning to end. We're talking about how the conversions work, the issues that come up as they look at deals and evaluate opportunities. And then we dig into just the incredible amount of technology-enabled management that they have in their properties. They go much further than most operators in this space today using commercially available software and equipment, including digital locks on all the doors. Really incredible. And we dig into the benefits, what that means for self-storage investors, how that makes you a more competitive self-storage owner when you have technology-enabled properties. Really incredible. We dig into a lot of things today. We also talk about what is his exit strategy? If he's generally more tech enabled than a lot of folks in the space today, then how does he plan to sell those properties back to the market that may not quite be to the point of using using all the technology today? So really incredible. A lot of information. You're going to learn a ton. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, or had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Now, let's get with Jonah. Jonah, thanks for joining us today. Let's talk self-storage. Always love talking self-storage investing. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and what you you do. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and where you're investing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I got started in self-storage in 2018, 2017, technically. Uh, I was working for a family office at the time, and this was their first foray into self-storage as well. Uh, they just had an empty building. They wanted me to go figure out how to put some cash flow in, and that was my idea at the time was, hey, let's go figure out how to convert it into climate-controlled self-storage. So it was really just an adaptive reuse project, which is kind of the cooler, newer term, a conversion uh, project that we did. And um, I, I loved it. It worked really, really well. It leased up and ended up uh, spitting off more net cash flow than the Dollar General that was in the building prior, uh, And which is small, a small project, obviously. Dollar General is about eight to 9,000 square feet on average uh, gross. Uh, but then I, uh, I wanted to do it again, and they finally did. Uh, pulled the trigger on two more projects about uh, 18 months later. and um, it was, it was all, all running after that. I decided I wanted to go off on my own, ended up partnering with my partner, David, and he and I have been uh, raising capital and doing mostly conversions ever since. Great. So about how many deals have you done so far? We're uh, in the middle of project number 21 at the moment. That's awesome. So really keeping a, a significant clip there. Can you tell us about the adaptive reuse model and like compare and contrast it to the other self-storage investing models that are out there? Yeah, sure. I love conversions. I could talk about conversions all day. So, uh, uh, you really hit it out of the park with that question. No, uh, <laughs> I, I like conversions for, for three reasons. Um, I always tell people kind of jokingly, but you, you have three options, three reasons why you would like them, but you don't always get all three. Uh, sometimes you get two out of three, but first one is, uh, typically a conversion is an adaptive 
uh, reuse of a project uh, that may have previously been retail or grocery or furniture store or something like this. Uh, and so typically that footprint is already sitting in a very populous part of town, right? A very established uh, footprint. And so uh, we really like the location in town we usually get when we do a, a conversion project. The second thing you usually get is a, a much higher quality building. Uh, if you build a ground up single story, I mean, you're, you're talking about a light gauge steel building, right? Uh, instead we're getting brick and mortar, you know, HVAC on the roof, very well, uh, designed and insulated. Uh, typically the lights can be reutilized. Maybe we'll have to relamp them if they're not led. Uh, typically the existing HVAC plan works fine. Uh, so you get to reuse a lot of what's already there as your, as your platform. Now, uh, the third thing that I like is usually it's cheaper and faster. That's kind of two things, but uh, that's not always the case. Obviously, every market is different. Every municipality and their entitlement process is different. But typically, uh, we're able to go in with uh, either a uh, special use permit or possibly uh, a rezoning. But most of the time, it's not even a rezoning. Most of the time, it, it works, at least in the states we've been in so far, Texas, Missouri, Oklahoma. Uh, and so uh, you get all of that, not to mention typically a lower basis. So we're going in and getting an entire climate controlled class A project done for somewhere between 65 and $85 a square foot. Uh, in, in secondary tertiary markets, you're not going to build for that square foot, uh, that price per square foot in Dallas where I'm at, where I'm at currently, but uh, we're able to get in cheaper. So we really like those projects uh, and we've done 20 out of 21 of them have been uh, conversions to date. So it's kind of our bread and butter. Wow. So let's talk about the, supply and demand side of things and how you analyze that before you do a deal, because in many areas, it can be difficult to determine whether it's oversupplied in terms of the amount of self-storage in the market or, or undersupplied. So how do you approach that problem in running that analysis? Yeah. So we, we developed uh, an in-house development team. So I've got seven people on my development team. Uh, they're doing underwriting, market studies, uh, we're establishing markets we'd like to be in prior to finding either a footprint, piece of dirt, uh, conversion building that we'd like to convert most of the time. Every once in a while, we'll find the building first and reverse engineer. But uh, typically, we're establishing a market as, hey, I'd like to be here if a couple of different things. Uh, prices are good. Population is pretty good. Uh, but most most of the time, the main thing I'm looking for is supply on the climate control market because uh, we're going into a lot of markets that are uh, secondary, you know, 200,000 people or less. And uh, these markets have uh, very little climate control sometimes. And so you're building to catch up, which is really nice. Uh, instead of the model where you go to a suburb of a large city and you're, you're building and then waiting for the people to catch up to you, it's, it's really the reverse, right? The people are already there. <clears throat> They're just underserved. And so we, uh, we will establish uh, certain metrics. Everything's a little different. Obviously, it's, it's, uh, it's a science, not a, not a generic thing here. But uh, we really go in and make sure we've understood the market, the competition. And once we've established that we like that market, we'll go and start underwriting all of the buildings that we could potentially convert in that market. Or in this case, sometimes a piece of dirt that we might uh, build ground up uh, or, or we might buy a, a property that's already existing. So we're really looking for all three each time we find a market that we'd like to go to. Uh, it's just so happens conversions have been plentiful. Uh, really, since COVID hit, it made it even more uh, dramatic to find grocery stores, furniture stores, things like this. They were all going out of business. Uh, Walmart comes to town and all the little grocers have to go out of business. So there's a lot of these. Now they're small. Uh, people who are in self-storage that build the the giant, you know, 
80 to 200,000 square feet, minor average size 40, maybe 50,000 square feet. So significantly smaller. Uh, but uh, the, the reverse side of that is we are uh, a tech focused model with a lot of remote management and a lot of technology. And so we're able to keep our expense load down and typically see very similar uh, overall expense ratios. So do you find that the properties that you wind up buying have been sitting on the market vacant for a while and they're not getting interest from kind of the original type of user, whether it was a, a grocer, they're not attracting another grocer. So you're finding properties that have been waiting for a new buyer and able you're able to get a better price in that regard. I mean, what is the typical property that you buy kind of look like in terms of the commercial side of things? Is it sure. distressed yeah. you know, and, and so on? Uh, I, I would say most of the time it's distressed and not wanted. Uh, most of the time it's a grocery store that uh, has been vacant for some time uh, or it's a furniture store that uh, is readily going out of business, but there's no one that's going to take that footprint in that town at that moment. Um, and so most of the time there's no competition or very little competition. And uh, most of the time when we're when we do have competition on on the front end, when we're trying to buy it, it's usually not from someone wanting to do self storage. It's a different use. Uh, so that's that's been interesting. Now you get to a larger market. Conversions are very popular in the you know the, the closed down Macy's and the closed down Bed Bath and Beyonds and these kinds of things. And uh, obviously, there's a lot more competition when you get into major markets. Uh, but in our secondary tertiary markets, uh, typically we're the only bidder. Uh, we're able to negotiate a better deal. We're able to get a little bit more time because some of these buildings have. Uh, lots of issues, uh, whether it's entitlement issues, title issues, sometimes environmental issues. And we got to really study these things before we consider taking it on. Uh, and so having that extra 30 days of feasibility really does a good, uh, does you good whenever you're, you're pulling all those reports down and actually really studying the, the asset. So let's, can we dig into a few of those typical issues that you might run into, uh, just to Put some color on it for for the audience out there. Entitlement issues, title issues. I think you said environmental issues and and mm -hmm. so on. Other things you run into. Uh, can you give us a couple of like examples of things that you typically run into that are uh, those types of issues? Sure. Yeah. And some of them we walk away from, and some of them we are able to to uh, um, either correct or get comfortable with prior to closing. Right. So. Uh, for example, uh, we've, we've walked away from one where there was an upstream leak of some kind, an environmental issue, uh, didn't show up on a phase one, but there was just enough of a hint of something that we were kind of concerned. We did a phase two and sure enough, we found, uh, some interesting, uh, results. Uh, that one we didn't get comfortable with. We walked away. Uh, another one may be title issues. Uh, this happens a lot where you've got an old easement, uh, for somebody that had a, you know, a plan to drive, you know, put a street through the middle of the property or something. If that plan's been abandoned, sometimes you can actually be successful during your feasibility period of getting that uh, dropped off. And so one of our hires uh, last year was a former title attorney. Uh, he's been excellent. He's been able to go call the surveyor, call the title company, and actually get them to remove things. Uh, people don't even realize that you can actually argue these things from your title policy. Uh, you, you can actually go get them removed, sometimes uh, directly by the, you know, the utility or whoever has the easement, or sometimes it's just not an issue and the title company recognizes it's not an issue and they'll remove it from the exception list on your title policy. Uh, so we, we do a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, sometimes we'll see um, uh, special use permit is needed in order to do self-storage. Uh, maybe it's a secondary use and so it requires going to the PNZ uh, to get an approval. Uh, we've seen one where zoning didn't allow it, uh, special use didn't allow it, 
but they actually amended their special use table to allow it. Uh, so just another workaround to not have to do a full rezoning uh, that we've uh, been successful at. Uh, sometimes it's all sorts of uh, other, I would call them title issues, but really they're uh, utility issues and things like that. You got to recognize there's plumbing that may not be yours. It may be shared uh, going underneath your underneath the ground uh, where you're at. Uh, we had one, for example, the phase one actually brought up that there was an underground tank. And then uh, we went and looked at it. The underground tank was on the other side of the street. They just had the location mixed up. And so we were able, able to get them to revise the report, show it was not on the property, and then go ahead and pull the trigger on that property. So you really have to do your research. Just because it says it in a report doesn't mean it's accurate. Uh, you really have to actually dive in, understand what you're buying. And uh, if it sounds wrong, it might be wrong. I mean, they're professionals, but they do make mistakes. Really interesting examples there. So let's talk about the remote management and the tech side of things, because my estimation seems like you've gone further than most operators in utilizing technology and, and streamlining, streamlining operations so that you can do so remotely. So tell us about that, about how you manage your properties remotely. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a big uh, focus. So we were born out of the, the operational model. Uh, that first little deal I was talking about that I did that was a Dollar General, uh, it's too small to support a manager. So we just had no choice. We had to figure it out. If we were going to make that self-storage and make it profitable, it had to be run remotely. Uh, I'm not a fan of the unmanned concept. It, it's not unmanned. It does require human uh, interaction for cleaning, for uh, proper curb appeal, for auction processing, all the different things. Uh, but none of the customer service for our for our model happens on site. All the customer service is remote. Uh, if a customer needs to rent a unit, it's all online. Uh, we really push the customer to uh, what I call self service, self storage is kind of our tagline. I want them to do. I want them to do it, even if they uh, know how and they're trying to get us to do it for them over the phone. I'm I'm really just teaching them how to do it. I want them to learn how to do it, and so we force everyone to really learn that process. And so what we've been able to do uh, through proper signage, through a really good tech stack. Over time, it took, uh, took several years to refine it and find which vendors work together and which things work well. Uh, but it's six, seven different pieces of software and hardware that create a, a rental process uh, and a move-in process in this case. We'll talk about digital locks, but uh, that allows the customer to rent whenever they want, which is a big deal, uh, especially in these smaller markets. Uh, no one's open after five o'clock. So I get all the rentals after 5 p.m. Uh, every day of the week times 365 days a year. Uh, on the weekends, sometimes they're closed on Sunday or they're only open until you know 1 p.m. or something. Uh, I'm getting all those rentals. Uh, it's, it's really great, or after 1 p.m. in that case. Um, and so that that really affects your lease up and how you're able to stay full. But that those are really side effects of the technology. The best part is the scaling. So now I can take this same tech stack and I can scale it geographically and on smaller footprints. So I can operate a facility that may only be 10,000 square feet, which most people would look at as I can't manage that and make it make money unless I live nearby or something, maybe. Uh, instead, I could actually look at something that small. Now, I, I typically don't anymore, kind of outgrown it, but at the same time, it would work. It just, you know, I have a whole team of people now. So we do look at a little bit larger projects. Um, but the cool thing about the tech is, is it's truly self-service. The customer pulls you up on their phone, they rent a unit, uh, and then they're able to actually move into that unit using the technology on their phone. So they instantly receive an app download. That app has a key to the front door, a key to their unit that they rented, and they can move right in even at 11 o'clock at night, whatever it may be. And that happens a lot. You, you'd think, why would anybody want to move in? Self-storage is something you need when you need it, right? And so a lot of people are 
don't even think about renting early. They're pulling up in their Penske or U-Haul truck at 11 o'clock at night and expecting to move in. And most facilities, they'd have to come back at 9 a.m. the next day, right? Instead, they move right in, empty their truck out, go drop it off and get on with their life. And uh, so people really enjoy that aspect of being able to access their unit, rent online anytime they want and move right in without needing assistance. So I appreciate the the customer or client focus here and you're, you're serving their needs and that's obviously making your properties cash flow more and making them more valuable. So you had touched on very briefly digital locks. I think there mm-hmm. are very few operators out there using technology in their locks. Tell us about your, your digital lock setup. Yeah, sure. So digital locks have not been around that long. Um, they're, uh, let's see, 20... 2020, we were kind of beta testers on the first set that was really out there live. Uh, They were around a couple years before that, but in this format that we were using uh, this uh, format function. Uh, So it was, it was rough at first. Don't get me wrong. We, we knew going in eyes wide open, this was going to be an experiment, uh, one that we wanted to succeed and we were going to fight until we figured out how to make it work because it was part of the whole scaling plan. Right. Uh, And so we went in eyes wide open. Now, a lot of people, uh, did try it at the same time and walked the other way. And I understand them, but I just had a very set purpose in my head. I, I got to figure this out because it's my plan to scale. Um, these locks have come a long way now. Thankfully, as of April this year, uh, there's, I think, five, six quality competitors this year. So there's a lot of new hardware uh, to look at. Uh, and I think that's good for everybody, but uh, we're still using the one that we adopted. And so what happens is, uh, in this case, the hardware replaces the traditional latch on the door. So if you're ever in a storage unit before, you know, it slides to the left and open it up, slide it back to the right, put your lock on. In this case, it's this big hefty lock and it replaces that and it's completely digital. And so what it does is it allows the lock to communicate with the property management software. So anytime someone goes delinquent, they're locked out instantly. Nobody has to push a button. No one has to think about it. They're locked out uh, the moment they pay their bill right back in. And so it completely takes most of what a, what a manager on site would be doing on a typical daily basis. They'd be overlocking units. They would letting people back into units. Um, instead it's completely automated. And then the other thing you get out of that is you're able to overlock empty units, keep your facility more secure, uh, clean, not have to worry about really at the end of the day, if they move in when they didn't pay for it, you got to evict them instead of foreclose on. There's all these different laws. And so it's really nice to be able to keep your empty units secured when they're, when they're empty. Um, and so that, that technology has changed the game uh, because now someone can not only rent online, but they can move in anytime. And uh, the only time they really need to reach out to us is much more complicated questions. So it's interesting to see over time as we perfected kind of the system, uh, how the call volume and the types of calls we were receiving changed. You know, it used to be, hey, do you have a 10 by 10? Or, you know, how much is your 10 by 10? I don't even remember the last time we got a call like that. They don't they don't ask those questions. It's very simple on the website, very simple in the signage. Instead, it's, hey, you know, I need I need to troubleshoot the lock or I need to change my auto pay method. Basically, it's an escalation. So from the moment they, they call you, they're already in an escalation mode, which is fine. We just have to know that, right? So now my customer service people uh, in my office in Dallas uh, they're able to answer those phone calls with that expectation. This customer's calling for a much bigger reason than Haiti of a five by five. And so we're, they're prepared for that. They're trained on both the hardware and the software. They have full access to everything. And so it's a very different customer service approach. Uh, we want our customer service agents that answer the phone to be able to do anything an onsite manager would be able to do and more. 
especially when it comes to technology. And, uh, and yet we hope they don't get called at all. Uh, the whole point is to try to make it as self-service as possible. And so our call volume has dipped to now, I don't know, maybe four or 500 calls across 16 open sites uh, a month. Uh, so it went from probably five times that down to that uh, over, over the course of the last year and a half or so. Uh, and that's just by proper signage, really good intuitive rental process, really good intuitive access process, and uh, just keeping the customers happy. Um, and so when they do call again, it's, it's an escalation, good or bad, you know, it's just something they need help with genuinely. And so we're able to actually help them with that over the phone in anything it may be. Nice. On the ca- the other side of that though, one of the great things, if you will, to play devil's advocate a little bit here is that your, your classic keyed or, or simple lock, they're pretty cheap. They're not that expensive really. Mm-hmm. So your digital locks, there's a lot of technology in here. There's, got to be a point at which they would in theory get too expensive. If each of these locks was $10,000 a piece, just to put a silly number on it, it would not be worth it, even though despite all the cool technology, but I would assume or figure that you're able to get these locks at a compelling price point that makes it worth it. What are they roughly coming out to? If you're able to share that. Yeah, sure. Um, So across the board right now, there are again, five new entrants into the market and I've heard prices all the way down to like 60 bucks for a very interesting model, uh, all the way up to 350, let's call it, uh, per door. I mean, that, that's an expensive lock, right? Um, I look at it a lot differently than most people do. Uh, most people tell me that's way too expensive. I can't make that work. Uh, but that's because they look at it as an amenity. That's an expensive amenity, right? If, if that's how you treat the lock, then you'll, you won't get it paid back for a very long time. Uh, cause then you're going to charge, you know, some $5, $10 technology fee or something. And it's going to take you three plus years, probably more like five to seven years to pay that thing off. Uh, by then, you know, the lock probably needs to be replaced. So did it even net you anything? So in this case, we're using the technology to replace onsite management. So in my mind, I'm actually treating it more like an NOI proposition, right? If I drop my bottom line by $50,000 at a six cap, you know, that, that paid for itself overnight, right? So the moment that got installed under my model, it instantly paid for itself. It wasn't even like a one-year payoff. It was an instant payoff because the value of the property went up by however much I added to the bottom line. Um, and so times a multiple. Uh, so that's kind of how we look at it. And so it makes it very easy to underwrite. Obviously, if they were $10,000, you'd have to start questioning, you know, am I now venturing into the place where even at a cap rate, it's not paying for itself or something? Okay, maybe. Uh, But you think about all the additional savings on the bottom line, and it's a no-brainer on most properties. Uh, Even the smallest one, I think it still makes sense in most cases. Great. Okay. So before we go to the three questions I ask every guest in the show, I want to ask about your exit strategy because your operations are so sophisticated and streamlined, but they're on the flip side of that, they're a bit more sophisticated and streamlined than a lot of the folks out there, including a lot of your potential buyers when you ultimately want to sell these properties. And feel free to, you know, refute that if 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 I'm totally off base here, but you're selling into or one day you're going to sell into a market that may not quite be ready to adopt all of this technology that you've adopted in the model. So 
what's the plan there? Or am I totally off base and the market is, you know, catching up with you and, and all the technology? What's the ex- exit? Strategy? No, you're not, you're not completely off base at all. Uh, I think it's come a long way. I love this question because it, it is a real, it's a real thing. Like you got to know how your exit uh, is, unless you just plan to keep it in cash flow for eternity, I guess if that's, if that's the plan, okay, fine. That'd be one thing, but I do intend to exit eventually. Right. Uh, there's a couple things to note. Um, one, even just five years ago when I was starting remote management was something that a bank would look at and underwrite and they just put a manager back in the underwriting. Right. And so we've come a long way just in that one front. Okay. Then we're not talking about operations yet, but just that one idea of remote management versus traditional management that's become accepted over the last five years to now you can actually get an appraiser or a bank or someone to underwrite it with your operating margins and, and believe you that you can exit at that NOI. So that, that's the first step. That was that was a good one. The second one is is considering the technology, right? The the streamlined operations. Um, we did two things very carefully uh, that I am proud of. I guess I'd say um, people can make the mistake of what you just said. You can you can um, make it so proprietary that it makes it hard to sell, right? Uh, we went the opposite route. We've seen that there's actually a couple of horror stories in this industry of people who went a little bit too far with proprietary software, maybe in-house property management software, something like that. They go to exit and yeah, you're right. It hurt the valuation, right? Um, instead, we're like, okay, we're not going to make that mistake. One, I don't want all the manpower on my staff to have to keep something up to date, keep it cutting edge. That's, that's a nightmare. Instead, I'm like, I'm going to go partner with the best software, the best hardware in the industry at that time. And yes, it, it's open for interpretation because every day new technology changes and new technology comes out and I'm going to do whatever works. But at the same time today, I feel like we have the best tech stack that's available. And these vendors, that's their full-time job is to keep their software cutting edge, to keep their hardware cutting edge. So I'm really just the middleman providing feedback, providing uh, the feedback that they need to make their products work together so that that tech stack is eventually transferable to the next owner. So whether I sell one off and I'm selling to some, you know, John and Sally that live down the street, they can actually operate the way I do, or they can hire me to operate it the way I do. That's fine too. I could, I could take it on as a third party management project, but uh, that, that was the goal. We wanted it to be transferable. Uh, but really, if you're asking what my plan is, my plan is to roll this up into hundreds of locations before we consider doing something like that. And so then you're then you're asking who is my buyer at 200 locations. Now it's probably a REIT, right? Maybe a private equity group, but probably a REIT. Uh, and I actually heard this from I'll give him credit, Tyler. I don't know Tyler's last name. Sorry, Tyler. Uh, Tyler at Extra Space uh, was telling me, you know, how how important it was to him that there were some um uniformity in the technology that's coming out there were two reasons one of them was selfish on his part and that's okay it's business selfish not not in a bad way and that was hey the more streamlined it is the more uniform it is the easier it is for us the reits to buy it up and immediately put it back into our system and make it work the second part was it makes it more affordable and more cheap for everyone of us the moms and pops and the smaller operators to actually adopt new technology the more um, it's kind of like having a universal standard, right? Switching USB-C or whatever it may be. Uh, these things help uh, the little guys compete with the big guys by having access to the same technology, making it work out of the box. Uh, these things are good. So anyway, listening to him talk about his viewpoint, which he may very well be, not him personally, but Extra Space may very well be a buyer someday, right? And so I want to make sure I build something that they want to buy. If I'm not building something they want to buy, I'm probably doing it wrong. So that goes down to the underwriting on the actual assets, the locations of the assets, 
the types of uh, uh, modeling that we're doing on our revenue management, on our operations. All of these things matter because your buyer is out there probably today. He's probably not going to pop up in the future. It's probably one of the people that are already in this business today that are much larger than me. And so we're, we're trying our best to make sure we're considering that with everything we do. Love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Tracking your rental property business no longer needs to be a hassle. Stessa, a new financial technology company, helps real estate investors just like you take their real estate rental portfolio to the next level by automating the financials of their rental property portfolio. You can get started with just 20 bucks a month to take your rental business to the next level by tracking your properties, automatically collecting rent, tracking your expenses, and so much more. Using technology can take so much of the hassle out of owning a rental property portfolio. So check out Stessa today by using our link in the description and you can get started for free or upgrade to their pro package for just $20 a month. This type of software can save you a ton of time. Go check out Stessa today by using our link in the show notes. Now back to the show. All right, Jonah, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yep, absolutely. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? My favorite book by far uh, is Think and Grow Rich. Uh, it's a classic uh, that gets better every time you read it. Uh, you get something, some new nugget out of it every time you pull it out. So uh, I try to read it uh, once a year or so, and uh, it, uh, it just keeps getting better. Awesome. Classic recommendation. Question number two, who or what inspires you? That's a challenge. Uh, I'll, th I'll, I'll just say that a couple different uh, things inspire me. Uh, I, I like uh, the concept of always growing as a, as a person. And so people who are out there teaching you to, uh, to dream bigger, uh, to do bigger things, to push yourself, to grow over your fears, whatever it may be, uh, those are the people that inspire me. So uh, one of them could be my father, uh, who, who is he's, uh, uh, definitely a mentor and a, and a friend and has so much recall on every great quote by every good person. Uh, ever, uh, or, or people in the industry today that I look up to, uh, that are out there just doing creative deals. They're out there just pushing and grinding every day, but yet somehow find time to make sure that they are growing as an individual with their family, whether it's being a father or whatever it may be. Uh, those people, uh, push me to be better every day. Love it. Question number three, think about Jonah at 80 years old. What advice would he give to Jonah of today? I, I think probably if I don't learn this lesson he'll be telling me i should have slowed down a little sooner i don't intend to right now but there will come a time when i need to figure out how to delegate more and not do so much myself that's a lesson that we all probably need to learn at some point especially if you're growing a business you can't be a one-man show you really do need to learn how to build a team how do you uh how to make yourself uh bigger without expending more of your own effort uh so it's a it's a challenge it's a grind and uh i know um it's something I'm going to have to face or I'm going to be at 80 telling myself, you should have spent more time with your family. You should have done this. So uh, I'm out there fighting and I won't stop, but uh, I will find a way to, to build a team and, and, and grow uh, the legacy without having to be the one uh, turning over every stone. I love that. That's so important. Jonah, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this knowledge. If folks want to get in touch or track you down, where can they find you? I'd say the best place is LinkedIn. Uh, I do intend to uh, be a little more active on other uh, outlets here shortly, but LinkedIn is where uh, you can find me. Uh, you reach out to me there. I'm happy to, to schedule a phone call, follow up, whatever. LinkedIn, I think it's uh, uh, Jonah M. Hall, uh, if you're looking for me. 
Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.